Hello, 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 and welcome to Tease Me. This is a podcast about the intersection of golf, business, and life. And occasionally we'll drop some gems on networking and just how that makes your life better. Because knowing more than one person is actually a good thing. Welcome, Tease Me audience, to another Fierce Female Friday. On this episode, we have Kathleen Camilli. She is one of the nation's leading economists, highly regarded by investors across the world. Her insights and forecasting track record have helped corporations avert financial disaster and preserve capital for decades. She brings gravitas to the boardroom, plus a wealth of money management and operating experience. Kathleen founded Camelli Economics in 2004 to address the growing need for independent economic analysis after the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley. Kathleen is a sought-after speaker and regularly speaks to associations of CEOs, CFOs, COOs, bankers, corporate treasurers, and other financial professionals. She has appeared on CNN, CNBC, and the News Hour with Jim Lehrer, Nightly Business Report, and Bloomberg Business News, where her views are highly regarded internationally by investors. Partnering with the Center for Information Mapping at the Parsons School of Design in 2005, she formed Economic Mapping LLC. This entrepreneurial initiative was founded to mine and map economic data using advanced mapping technology. Named as one of the top five economic forecasters by the Wall Street Journal, Kathleen called the turning point of the tech bubble in 1999 and 2000 and the recession in 2001, which earned her a number one performing forecaster by the Wall Street Journal and Business Week. She is the author of several articles, including Reserves Forecasting for Open Market Operations, published in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York Quarterly Review in 1986 and still cited. Kathleen has served on many not-for-profit boards, including the National Association of Business Economics, National Council on Economic Education, the Epiphany School Foundation, the Wyndham Mountain Skita, S-K-I-T-A, an organization that is preparing young athletes to compete nationally and internationally for the Olympics, representing the USA. She is active in organizations such as the National Association of Corporate Directors, the University of Delaware's Governance Centers, KPMG's Audit Institute, the Conference Board, the Forecasters Club, the Asia Society, and the Women's Global Forum at Davos. Kathleen is an avid skier, sailor, and swimmer. She is a voracious reader of nonfiction and lifelong learner. She and her husband, Peter, a liquidity funding and risk expert, reside in New York, and they have two sons. Hello, Tease Me audience. Today, we have Kathleen Camelli, and she is here to share her journey in golf and share a lot of experiences around her professional journey in general. What I love about our conversation is Kathleen and I actually were sitting next to each other at the Fast Company Innovation Festival in New York City. And we just started chatting about life and I shared my journey with golf and shared some information about this podcast and I convinced her to join us. So Kathleen, welcome. Latoya, I'm so excited to be here to share with you my journey, my golf journey, even though I'm not passionate about golf. <laughs> and that's what why, this is what I love because this audience that's listening, they may not be passionate about golf. They may not have even started playing, but they're curious about the game and they know that it may benefit them. And so what I loved about our story was that you were 
totally honest about not loving it, but being willing to play and being able to leverage it when it when it mattered. So I'd love to talk about that. You've been featured on a number of television shows. Can you share when you go on these shows, what are you talking about and what are you helping the audience understand? One of the um, things that I've been told over the course of my career is that I had the ability to take complex a complex subject and distill it down and make it understandable for the layman. And so um, on my, in my career on Wall Street, um, I was a business economist working on a trading desk. And that in that function, you are uh, talking about the economy um, with clients, you are writing reports, and you are also appearing on television and on radio to talk about the latest economic statistics, what they mean for the growth of the economy, what they mean for the direction of interest rates. You're helping the average individual understand what what's happening in finance and what's happening in the world and what's happening to our money. You're an economist by trade. And I don't know if the world understands what that means because you're working at an economic firm. Could you share with the audience just so that they're clear and they understand what this role entails? So uh, an economist uh, looks at the data that's collected by the government about economic activity. So you, the people who are listening, you are um, workers, presumably you work in a job and you are a consumer and maybe you're even an investor. And um, in those roles you play in the economy, uh, the money you spend at stores and the salary you collect at your job and maybe the money that you invest in the markets is all recorded by the government and and tabulated and um, uh, used to measure how fast our economy is growing. So the, on, the, on a daily basis, you're monitoring the data, uh, you're talking about it with clients, and you're even making an attempt to forecast the future, uh, which comes at great difficulty for people in our profession. But companies need that because they, they need to form strategy for the next three to five years. Now, these moments when you were on Wall Street, at what point did you recognize that golf might be important and how did you navigate that? So it really was well before that. It was when I was in undergraduate school. Um, so I started in 1977. And when I joined Douglas College, they had a gym requirement. I know that sounds kind of antiquated probably to all of you who are listening. Um, but there was a gym requirement. And so I decided to take golf because I knew when I was a freshman that I wanted to go into business. And I took fencing. So I took golf and fencing. I, it was a it was a year-long gym requirement, you know, split into two semesters. And I said, well, I'm definitely going to take golf because I didn't grow up in a golf family, um, but I knew that golf was important for business. Now, when did you first see golf in your professional career become a relevant conversation? It wasn't early on because when, when I was in my 20s, I wasn't a golfer. And I was also working on a trading desk and um, in the course of my um, daily activities at a Wall Street firm, nobody really invited me to any golf games because I wasn't a regular golfer. It did become important later on as I became more recognized as an expert and respected uh, because you know with uh, with your with your work and your work ethic and your 
you know, you, you become, you become um, known in your field. So I got a bigger position when I got a bigger position as a chief economist of a small brokerage firm that's no longer exists, but I was the chief economist of Tucker Anthony Sutro uh, between 1995 and 2001. Um, I was then invited to play golf because I was um, um, a more senior official in the firm. And there were golf outings with clients. Senior people were invited to come and golf. And so that's when I really first started to use it. I think I probably would have been invited more uh, in my 20s and 30s if I was a regular golfer. But I, I didn't take the time to play golf. And so I didn't become very good at it. And when you were invited out to these client events, how did it feel? Were there a lot of other women there? And how did you use your time on the course? It, there were very few women. Um, there were very, there are very few women economists, period. So um, it was um, pretty special to be invited as a female economist. And then um, in, the, in the brokerage firm, there were some female um, uh, advisors, uh, and that was good. But, you know, it was mostly men. Um, but it, it felt good to be invited. Uh, I, I can even tell you a little uh, story about how I was pregnant with my first son. Uh, and I played golf in the Tucker Anthony golf outing in the spring of 1995. And, uh, I actually won, uh, the, uh, longest, the, I won the prize at the, um, at the gathering at the end of the 18 holes for the longest drive off the woman's tee at the first hole. So there must've oh been goodness. something to, yeah, there must've been something to being pregnant, playing golf. Uh, maybe I had extra power. I was carrying a baby boy, so maybe that had something to do with it. And he was totally. born shortly thereafter on June 5th. <laughs> totally, totally. Does he play golf right now? Does he play at all? Um, so my both my sons are golfers. They play golf, yes, because I made sure that they took golf lessons when they were young. Uh, but um, they like some other sports a lot more. But they do realize the importance of golf for business. I see. And it's amazing because you're working as an economist, you're pregnant, you're at this golf tournament, and you're showing them that women can play in any condition and any situation. So that's an amazing <laughs> <True>. visual. <laughs> yes. And I had a very supportive CEO who really, you know, he wanted to hire a woman economist and he wanted her to be prominent in the firm. And um, I was pretty, I, I was pretty happy when they invited me to the golf tournament because I think a lot of them knew I was not a regular golfer but it was good for me to be seen in that role so very important I hope the female listeners um if you're young you, you take note of this because um you know uh I think it's a I think it's important to know that golf is important for business now, you said something very powerful as well. Your CEO wanted you to be seen. Did you know that when you joined the firm that you had such an advocate or an ally in that seat? I did know that because um, the CEO hired me. He, he hired me knowing, I, I, just, I remember this from the, uh, from the interview, that he said, we know that you're going to have more children and that's okay this is a good place. This is a, we want you here. This is going to be a good firm for you. So that means he was supportive right from the outset. Yeah. That is excellent. That is excellent. And yeah. I think that when 
when women are evaluating new potential opportunities or roles, what would you recommend they look for in their leadership team just so that they can know that they don't have to be afraid to have a family or afraid that their career is going to end when they decide to, to, to stop working for a little while to raise their family? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I think it's important to, 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 to be supported, right. To have great leadership. Um, when you join a team at any firm, you want, you want to know that, 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 uh, that the senior executives support you being there. So clearly, um, and I was, I'm trying to think when, how old I was. I was in my mid thirties when I joined that firm. So, um, and I had already distinguished myself in the, in the business economics community through my writing and speaking and being on television. So they knew what they were buying when they, um, when they hired me. And um, so in all aspects of your career, you need to show a good work ethic and you need to um, you need to stand out and you stand out by working hard and gaining the respect of others. I also notice that you do a lot of community service and you serve on a number of not-for-profit boards. Could you tell us a little bit about that and have you used golf at all in any of those spaces? I was on a lot of not-for-profit boards when I was in my 40s. And the, the reason was because I took a step back from a Wall Street career after my, uh, after, after 9-11. Um, actually, the firm I was where I was chief economist was sold. And um, I did not go along with the firm. So I started my own consulting. I, I actually um, joined Credit Suisse Asset Management, and I tried the asset management side of the business. And I joined a whole bunch of not-for-profit boards because my kids were going to school then, uh, and I was... Um, you know, doing not-for-profit activities to um, keep my um, skills sharp and keep my hand in the game and also to, um, you know, to give back to organizations who were helping me. So I was on the board of the Epiphany School Foundation uh, in New York where my kids went to school. I was on the board of um, the National Association of Business Economists, which is my uh, professional organization. Um, I was on the board of, um, when my oldest son got a little older, he went to Fordham Prep, which is a, um, a Jesuit uh, high school. I was on, and he was a rower. So I was on the board of the uh, Parents Rowing Association. Um, and yes, there were opportunities on some of these organizations to golf, but um, <laughs> Latoya, I really am not passionate about golf, so I didn't. I didn't take the opportunity to play. And that's fine. And that is absolutely fine. But I think that that's part of the conversation that we're having, which is that you were able to embrace it and get comfortable enough with the sport that, so that when it was necessary, that you could leverage it as a skill. And I think that's the message that I want to communicate to the audience and to everyone listening is that you may not love golf. Like from what I recall, you shared that you're an avid skier as well. Well, when you have thrills of skiing, how do you compare golf? You don't. You shouldn't. You can't. Right. So what I let, so I didn't grow up as an athlete, um, and I didn't grow up in a very athletic family. I grew up in an intellectual family, and and so um, sports were not like second nature to me. And um, I would, you know, that's changed a lot for you know um, during the generations who are listening. Um, so I would say that, um, you know, when I had a chance to play other sports such as tennis or 
now, now I'm a sailor because I have an opportunity. I belong to a sailing club in Long Island. I have an opportunity to sail. It's very, and we race and it's fast moving. I, I tend to prefer the fast moving sports. And my husband is a passionate skier and a teacher of skiing. So, um, you know, when you get married, you, you end up doing your spouse's sport. So yeah, that's, that's true. And, and don't forget that golf is a very long game. Uh, it takes lots of hours to play. Uh, on a Saturday or Sunday when you're not working. And I was never interfacing directly with clients who golfed. So, um, you know, I wasn't in a financial advisor who needed to be out on the golf course with their clients in order to do more business because I was in a research position as an economist. So, um, you know, that was another reason I didn't really take the time to, um, to, to learn to play golf well. And, and now I joke because, you know, now I'm serving on several boards of corporate boards of directors and on boards of directors, um, men definitely play a lot of golf, but I, I tell them all, and I do play with them, but I tell them now that uh, I'm going to take up golf when I'm 70, because I think that by that time, maybe I'll have slowed down and I'll, I'll be able to take up the game. Okay, that is hilarious. And based on your skills and the activities that you participate in right now, I find it highly unlikely you probably will do something even more exciting, like moving to <laughs> snowboarding or something. Who knows? <laughs> no, 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 no. I will not move to snowboarding. Toya, <laughs> no. Well, wait, tell me more about sailing because this is a very interesting. I think you might be the first person that I've met that's a sailor. So, how did you get into uh-huh. sailing and what does that entail? Okay. So my father was in the U.S. Navy. He served uh, in the Pacific Basin in World War II. He was a sailor. Um, and um, so, but when we were growing up in New Jersey, uh, we, uh, my father, well, sailing was my father's passion. And when he married my mother, he gave up sailing because he said it was impossible to have two loves in life. And he loved my mother, so he gave up sailing. And um we also grew up in Marstown, New Jersey, and unless you had a summer house and you say, oh, you know, which we didn't have, we, uh, we were, he, was, he did not pass on sailing to us. So um, when my sons were young uh, and I was deciding what sports, you know, they should go into, I wanted to give them a gift of their, that, of their grandfather. And so there was a small club out in Long Island, which didn't cost very much to belong to. And I signed my kids up for the program when they were eight and 10 years old, which is the age that you could join. And um, they learned how to sail. So I feel like I gave them a gift of my father, a, a gift that my father didn't give to us because he was so passionate about it. And so when they were done with the junior sailing program, um, then I decided I should learn to sail. And that was only a few years ago. And then, then some of the guys who have boats, they allowed me to uh, be on their boats and to race with them because um, these are three-person boats and you always need to find crew. So, that And I enjoy an it. It's fast, very fast. It's very fast-paced. And, um, you know, they're very competitive because they've been sailing since they were kids. They used to sail with their dad. So they're, um, they're very competitive. Yeah. Oh, that is an amazing... That, I... And now I'm going to pay more attention to, are, are people sailing on the Hudson River as well? I, I might pay attention. Oh my um, goodness, they are. Yes, actually, I know a couple of people from Wall Street who joined that um, Manhattan Sailing Club that's across the way in Jersey City. Oh, um, interesting. 
Yes. Uh, not Maybe it's governor. Maybe they launch out of Governor's Island. I can't remember where they launch out of. But yes, there's actually quite a, quite a lot of opportunity for sailing around Manhattan Island. Interesting. And I'm sure that there are amazing people that are, that are sailing. So if anyone's listening, aside from golf, you can scale. Sailing is fun too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm an advocate of but, all hobbies and activities. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, I did have an interesting experience that we're getting off the track from golf, but I did have an interesting experience this summer because I sail, as I mentioned, I sail with a guy who's been sailing for 40, you know, 50 years, right? 50 years, uh, and and for the first time in a long, long time, he kept he captains the boat, he capsized the boat, and wow. so I found myself in the water because these type of boats we race can capsize if you you know it it, it requires a lot of precision skill, and so I found myself in the water. And <laughs> I always wear a life, the life vest. So. Okay, you are wearing. A oh life yeah, jacket. I always wear. I always wear a life vest. I had to get back into that allowed me to. That allowed me to, because we had some swells, and it allowed me to float on my back and then pick up all the debris that had fallen off the boat, while the other two, the captain and the other person, were trying to right the boat by um, putting all their body weight on the keel, yeah, on the centerboard. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I can't imagine falling off a boat in the Hudson River, so I probably No, no, it wasn't in the Hudson River. I'm sorry. It was, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, wouldn't do it in the, yeah, I don't think they sail that, that, uh, that type of boat in the Hudson River. They only sail keel boats. Keel boats okay, don't so, capsize. So this was uh, in, um, Shinnecock Bay out in Long Island. Okay. So thank you for clarifying because yeah. I was mortified yeah. thinking about falling into the Hudson River. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I, Cause the, ben, the Hudson River has too many currents. So that would be quite dangerous. Got it. And it's okay that we, um, segued away from golf because, The beauty of this podcast is to talk about the intersection of golf and life. And while our conversation started to talk, we started talking about golf, the love of it, the lack of love of it, but the need for it. Mm -hmm. And then we segue Mm -hmm. into other spaces where our passions can exist. And I think that the important part of our conversation is to help people understand that golf is a good tool to use when you need it, but you don't have to love it and play it every day. People still will respect you and appreciate that you've tried in those moments when it was important. And I think that that's, that's very true. And so it is important for the listeners to understand that golf is a very well-respected sport in, in business um, all over the world. And so if you're going into business, if that's you know, where you're headed, um, then you should take up the game because um, you know, the uh, job interviews take place on golf courses. Um, executive ju- uh, um, judge potential hires based on how they play, their character on the gor- golf course, how they behave. I mean, do they throw down the club? Uh, you know, when they don't make the shot. I mean, that's a that's a ding in the hiring process. So yes, I mean, you there there are there are things to be learned from doing any any sport, and some you know some sports are more evidence of um, character character attributes than others. Golf is one of them. Sailing is another one. Um, there are a couple of, couple of sports like that. Fair to say, I am on the search for the story of the worst behavior and how people manage that are situation. You? I am. I am. Well, also, because it's a good... Uh, listen, here's another thing. It's a good... Um, it's a, I mean, do, do, you, do you mark your ball where it lands or do you pick it up and move it a couple inches? 
I mean, do you cheat? <laughs> so, I mean, that, cheating on a golf course is also an indicator. Well, does that mean that, you know, if we give you some um, um, money to, to run or, or, you know, you're in charge of the finances, that you're going to cheat there too? So yeah, it's, uh, it's a very, very important, very important. Absolutely. Now, before we um, close our conversation, I want to hear more about the crypto asset exchange and what does that mean and what prompted you to get involved with that type of project? So I, I'm a lifelong learner and I really wanted to learn more about crypto assets. Um, and uh, my youngest son is a student at University of Chicago, and he had already invested in Bitcoin. And so um, I was approached through a LinkedIn recruiter uh, with two other very senior female professionals to um, be interviewed for board open board positions on this crypto asset exchange. It's privately founded. It's funded by Bain Capital, um, and it's in Chicago. And uh, I decided that I would take the opportunity to serve on this board to lend my uh, experience, wisdom, credibility, et cetera. Uh, and it would also be an opportunity for me to learn about the space. So it's right. exciting to hear that, you know, with the research, you were able to get comfortable and kind of step into that space and learn more and actually just yeah, embrace I mean, you it. Have to believe, you have to believe in the founders. Um, I found the founders impressive. They were young, very bright out of MIT. Uh, and I know how difficult it is to start a company. So this was not going to be an easy journey. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur at heart and I like to support other entrepreneurs who I believe in. I actually am on two advisory board for two female-led startups. So, um, so I was lending my support to their, uh, their endeavor. And I was very impressed by them because they, they wanted to bring three senior, uh, senior professionals onto their board. So they're oh, obviously the new generation. Yeah. They're, they're in their, uh, twenties, uh, late twenties. And they, they, they are obviously the new, uh, generation of, um, you know, company founders and executives. And so, that's very telling that this new generation is going to be um, very different about how they lead and what they do in the boardroom. So uh, again, for your young listeners out there, um, particularly the women, uh, that, and there's a lot of change happening and it's uh, all change for the good because we need a lot of diversity of thought in the boardroom and we need people from various backgrounds. It's an important statement to make and it requires people to be intentional um, early in their career about their goals because serving on a board, it takes opportunity, it takes exposure, but what else do you think it takes for a woman that might be considering herself a target or a candidate for a board position in her future career journey? I'm glad you mentioned the word intentional um, about career and um, um my father was always a big uh, proponent of making a plan he always told us to have a plan so i didn't have a plan to serve on a board but i knew that i wanted to work for my whole life and so when i left um my when i left wall street to, to start my own consulting firm i knew uh, i was offered a position by a ceo 
to be on his board. And I was 42 years old and I had never expected to be on a board. I didn't plan that out. But, um, but he, um, the reason he wanted me is because I had just won a bunch of awards for forecasting uh, by Business Week and the Wall Street Journal in 19, between 1999 and 2001. And so he, he saw that. He, he was thinking in his head that he wanted, um, wanted me to serve on his board. And I served with the treasurer of MIT on that board who was managing the $6 billion endowment of the university at that time. So, um, uh, so I think if you're, if you're planning for a long career, a long life, that yes, for women, they should be thinking about that. And they should think about being outstanding in their skill set, in their area of expertise, because those are the people who are chosen to be on board. And of course, you have to have integrity and you have to be a good character um, all of that, that goes without saying. But you have to be outstanding in your area of expertise because when the short list is put together of people for a board seat opening, you, you know, it's a competitive process and you want to be the person who's chosen. And also, there's a whole host of other skills that are involved in, get it, in being on a board. And one of the most important ones is being collegial. So you have to be collegial. Um, that's where golf comes in. Yes, yes. And when people you on board love, love to talk about golf. They do. <laughs> they do. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> and even when you're talking about the shortlist, how does the shortlist get comprised? Sometimes it's a conversation on a golf course. So I mean, how do people get on board? They get on board by, by really through their network. And how, and how do you build a network? Well, you build a network in your profession, but you also build your network based on what other activities you do outside, outside of the job. You build your networks in golf court, uh, you know, in golf clubs. If you belong to a club, you have a network. I love that. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you for that reassuring fact. For those that are listening, there's a moment in time when someone steps out and decides that I, I want to create this, this company, this space. What was that journey like for you as you left Wall Street and moved into the space that you're in now? And what do you see for your future? So at the time, I really wanted more flexibility in my job. I had two small children. They were going to school. I knew I had to. I wanted to, um, I wanted to have more flexibility. And so I, and at the time, it was uh, 2000. I started in 2004, which was exactly the year that I got on my first board. Um, and um, it was after Sarbanes-Oxley had passed, and there was um, growth in the independent research space. Um, there was an incurred, um, after Sarbanes-Oxley was passed, uh, firms were being, uh, independent research firms were starting up and money managers were being encouraged to, um, buy independent research. So that's what, um, kind of forced me in, uh, pushed me in the direction of knowing that it was possible to do. Instead of talking about my firm, I prefer to tell you what I think is, ha is very, very positive development for women just in the startup space, because so many changes now with women being funded by angel investors uh, and um, VCs, um, it's, this is a very positive development. Um, and... You know, at the time that I was starting, and this was just a consulting firm, um, you know, I mean, it would be, it would be impossible for a woman to get um, angel investors or venture capital. But 
let's see, and that was 2004, so that's 15 years ago. And now it's it's changed, changed a lot. So there's a tremendous hope for women who, uh, who want to um, you know, break out. Maybe they start the career in, in corporate world and they want to break out and do something entrepreneurial. And maybe they feel they were always born entrepreneurs. There's a lot of um, lot of opportunity, a lot of ways to fund your business now. Kickstarter, um, angels, um, all kinds of you know, crowdfunding spaces, all kinds of ways to start a business. Um, and that's something that's changed in a huge way for um, for the for good for the good of for the good of our economy. Most importantly, for the good of our economy and the good of our society. To, to all the people who are listening, think keep. Keep the long games in, in mind, you know? Not just, don't just play the short game. Not just the nine hole. Play the 18 hole. Think about, you know, make a plan. Make a plan and think long term because um, there's um, a lot of possibilities, lots and lots of possibilities now that were never there before because of all the changes that have happened uh, in the last decade. And they're all for the good, I think. Oh, that is awesome. So I think we'll end there because that was some great advice. I think we've had some really good conversations. And for our listeners, I hope that you really think about what Kathleen has shared, the long game. It's really about making a plan and really thinking through who do you want to be? What do you want to do? And how are you going to get there? And thank you, LaToya, for um, interviewing me. It was great meeting you at the Fast Company Innovation Festival. I loved the festival. It was my first time attending, but I'm an avid reader of the magazine. And um, just think about it. We hadn't sat next to each other and talked about golf. We wouldn't be doing this podcast. And hopefully we're inspiring the people who are listening to get out there and make it happen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tease Me. And there you have it, Kathleen. She's our fierce female for Friday. She is an economist. Can you believe that? How many economists can you say you've actually met? These are unprecedented times. The data, the markets, just everything that's occurring right now is going to change the trajectory of our lives. And wouldn't it be great to be able to ask an economist to compare historical data and understand trends? While we can never predict what will happen, the beauty in having data and information is that we can understand better what the possibilities are. I challenge you to listen to economists, to learn a little bit about what's going on in our markets, to celebrate Women's History Month, and to listen to the next episode of Tease Me.